The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Apple hits the $3 trillion mark, and it looks like Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes is going to jail. Tune in as our columnists discuss this week's top business stories. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, a financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from Manhattan. For this week's edition, I talked to two of our columnists in the United States about the world's most valuable company and one of Silicon Valley's biggest frauds. First, Richard Beals talks about Apple's extraordinary milestone reach this week. The company run by Tim Cook saw its market value hit $3 trillion. No public enterprise has ever been as big as the iPhone maker, which now accounts for 7% of the S&P 500 index. Google owner Alphabet tips the scales at less than $2 trillion, as do oil behemoth Saudi Aramco and e-commerce pacesetter Amazon.com. Richard explains how Apple may just get to $4 trillion before we know it. After that, Gina Chong chats about how defunct blood testing startup Theranos has become a cautionary legal tale. A federal U.S. jury on Monday convicted founder Elizabeth Holmes of defrauding investors. If that verdict stands, the possibility of years in prison sends a very strong message that even in Silicon Valley, there's a limit to how flagrantly you can fake it until you make it. Give a listen. Happy New Year, Richard Beals. First of all, you wrote a <laughs> bunch of stories this week already, uh, this year, I should say. But one of the ones that caught everyone's eye was this view about the Apple reaching a $3 trillion market capitalization, which is extraordinary on a whole bunch of levels. But maybe just sort of walk us through the, the, why to you this is so significant. Yeah, Happy New Year, Rob. Happy New Year, Tim Cook at Apple, hitting <laughs> that milestone um, only briefly so far. But, you know, if the markets keep going up, it seems likely it'll continue. Now, of course, these these numbers are just numbers. They're just milestones. They're just round numbers. It's it's part of a progression for a company like Apple, but it is pretty extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, we, the breaking views, were early predictors that Apple could be the first $1 trillion company. And that was less than four years ago that happened. And now it's $3 trillion. Of course, we predicted it way more than four years ago. We and did. We it, did. Took us, it took a while for that prediction to come through, but that was, a, that was a heck of a prediction. I mean, interestingly, that was, you know, back then, Apple was sort of undervalued relative to the market. At least that was our view now. I don't think you can say that anymore, which probably means there's a little more risk to the valuation than, than they used to be. Well, let's go. Let's walk through that. I mean, you, yeah. back then we were saying that they traded at a price to earnings multiple that it was a discount to the S&P. Now, yeah. where are they? Now they're at a premium, but not a huge one, like 30 times rather than 26 times or something for the market. Part of that is because Tim Cook has managed against the doubters, really, over the, the decade plus he's been in charge to absolutely keep on capitalizing on this massively successful iPhone product, even without producing another blockbuster product, really. He's just sold more and more iPhones and more and more of the, the surrounding things, the apps, the headphones, enough to, enough to keep it going at a pace that surprised people who were sort of a little bit skeptical for a lot of years. So they had a bit of, so Tim Cook, of course, took over famously for Steve Jobs, and he hasn't really, I mean, they, uh, didn't they watch a, launch a watch, but other, and a couple of, you know, subscription business, things like that. But generally speaking, he's focused and kept the focus on, on the iPhone as the primary engine of earnings and growth. Yeah, I mean, the iPhone has been such a success that Tim Cook has been able to focus on selling more iPhones, replacement iPhones, the things around iPhones, whether it's speakers or app, app store revenue or music 
service, all those things have surprised the doubters really over time, even without producing any blockbuster new product, which I think initially after Cook took over, after Steve Jobs had died, investors, analysts thought, well, Apple's going to need another blockbuster product. It turns out the iPhone so far is such a blockbuster that it's lasted this long still. And of course, the, the, the market cap, let's just put this in perspective, $3 trillion is more than any other company in history. And it, and it's, it compares to just $1 trillion for Apple, just what, three years ago? So, yeah, three and a half, yeah. So that's next story. It accounts for, what, 7% of the entire S&P 500 index? Yep, yep. Um, and you've got a couple of companies sort of not too far away, like Microsoft. And in a completely different sector elsewhere in the world, Saudi Aramco is, is, is a big company, oil company, but the others are all tech, tech players. And, and that's despite the fact that Apple has for at least five years now been giving a lot of money back to shareholders. And if, you know, if, if you, if you buy back shares, you obviously reduce, um, the number of shares in your market cap calculation. So how much without, bigger would they be if they well, had? Um, I don't quite know, but could easily, I mean, yeah. over five years, I'd have to check, but could easily be close to that four trillion, the next trillion. If you had took the share count from, say, five years ago, I'd have to check that, but it could easily be something like that. Right. Now, who's going to be next? I guess it's the real, who, who else, who's going to be the next company to crest the three trillion dollar market cap weasel? Well, I mean, the, the logical one to chooses Microsoft for a couple of reasons. One, it actually crossed over Apple's market cap in the latter part of, uh, well, in the second half of 2021, before Apple sort of accelerated off again. And I think you can argue that Microsoft is right in tune with a whole bunch of mega trends right now, whether it's cloud, cloud services, whether it's the sort of working from home type apps, whether it's even the sort of metaverse, Web3, these sort of slightly nebulous you know, new versions of the internet that people like to talk about. Microsoft is kind of on top of all of those, and it doesn't have a couple of risks that Apple has, like big hardware supply chains, for example, or a big business, sort of both in terms of supply and customers in China. I mean, it does have customers in China, but it doesn't perhaps have Apple's sort of hardware focus there, which if things went badly south in a relationship with China, could, could be under threat. Okay, well, that that chimes nicely with your prediction that uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, would be the kingpin of 2022, no? Well, that's the prediction. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. But we said in that piece, it seems a good bet. And now we're talking about second-generation CEOs, right? As you said, Tim Cook replaced the famous Steve Jobs at Apple. Satya Nadella did not quite replace Bill Gates at Microsoft. He replaced Steve Ballmer, but Steve Ballmer was something like employee number 30, so very much a first-generation Microsoft person. So these, these two guys have managed to carry on and transform, to some extent, their companies. Microsoft, perhaps especially, from this kind of on-desktop software model to the cloud very successfully. And they both added huge amounts of dollar value to, to those companies. I mean, Apple is the bigger company right now. Tim Cook has added a little more value in dollar terms, but he started from a larger base and he's had more time. So if Nadella manages to cross over Apple in terms of market cap in the coming year, he'll he'll look like the champion. All right, Richard. Well, uh, we will see whether that prediction comes to fruition in 2022. Thanks, Rob. Happy New Year, Gina. It's great to talk to you in 2022. You've already started out with a bang here writing about one of the biggest stories to rivet the startup and tech world which is elizabeth holmes the founder 
of Theranos being convicted of four counts of fraud and conspiracy. Let, this is a pretty big deal. What what actually happened? Yeah, it's the company that um, she touted as being able to conduct hundreds of clinical tests based on a single finger prick of blood, which would have been revolutionary technology if had if it had worked. And that was obviously the key that it it actually didn't. And so this trial is really a test of how much founders could hype their products and sort of pitch what they can do and whether that is sort of overenthusiastic marketing or does it cross the line into fraud and lying to investors and others involved. And the jury, after about 50 hours of deliberation, came out with a verdict that at least when it came to investors, it was indeed lying to them. And she was found guilty on on four counts of defrauding investors and conspiracy to defraud them. Now, of course, she wasn't found guilty on charges relating to defrauding patients. Yes. So that was, I thought, actually a logical decision from the jurors, even though emotionally it obviously uh, couldn't sort of create some anger as well. But the prosecutors just didn't have as much evidence on that front as it did with investors. And the key thing for all of this, whether it was investors or patients, was whether she intentionally committed fraud or whether you know it was more sort of negligence. Um, and when it came to the patients, the prosecutors just couldn't make that case. But it's kind of funny, you go back to that this, we've been in a, a good decade in which startups and founders, many of them have hyped up their companies, no question about it. And, they, and there is a sort of, maybe here you kind of create some of the more clear lines between what is hype and what is bullshit, I guess is another word, which is then the next sort of level that is fraud. Yeah, exactly. And it's a good sort of test case for that, for other cases that will come possibly before the courts, particularly with these special purpose acquisition companies that we've seen tap public markets. And a lot of them have very overhyped companies, particularly in sort of electric vehicles and space technology. And, you know, a lot of them don't have products, they don't have revenue, but yet they've raised a lot of money. And whether that crosses a line, this could be a, a bad omen for them. Right. I mean, you, we've we've looked at so many of these DSPAC deals where they come out with total addressable market cap and these extraordinary promises. And you just wonder, like, is it just smoke and mirrors? Uh, I guess, what, what did we learn from the Theranos trial and Elizabeth Holmes? What did they do or what did she do that was, you think, kind of clearly crossed that line of BS and hype to clear fraud? Well, so Holmes made the unusual move of taking the witness stand for several days to defend herself because she was, you know, had been hailed as the next Steve Jobs. She had developed this sort of cult of personality that really helped make Theranos a huge success. And I think she was relying on that charisma to persuade jurors and just didn't pull it off because of the weight of the evidence that was presented against her, including all these investors and executives from Walgreens and others who talked about 
being duped, being shown technology that wasn't actually from Theranos, but from other products. And in addition to that, there were a lot of revenue projections that the prosecutor showed that she intentionally knew were, were false, that they were going to generate you know billions in sales when it was actually only a couple hundred thousand a year so in the face of that kind of evidence it was hard for her to to make her case that you know she made some mistakes but that she believed all along that the technology would work but she took the stand i mean that is always that is of course a risky decision but you know and she had this cult of personality and she had you know she was on the cover of fortune magazine and hailed as this sort of as you say the was she oh by the way was she actually wearing a sort of black turtleneck a la <laughs> no she she wore um she did not wear her signature outfit uh, for the most part she wore sort of regular business suits um so yeah i think she was trying to get away from <laughs> some of the, the imagery that had launched her right right but but i mean she was so, but that was unsuccessful. The jury saw through it. I, just going back to these investors, I guess one question is: these were they were relatively sophisticated investors. They were people like, well, a family office related to the former Trump Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. If I'm not mistaken, there were Rupert Murdoch was one of the investors. Yeah. So. I guess what's kind of interesting, if I think about how to wrap this, you know, think about the implications for, as you say, the SPACs and others, is, you know, these were not ordinary investors. So if you think about it, this could be, this this could set a precedent for w what we would think of as more ordinary investors, public investors, when it comes time to looking at some of these overhyped SPACs. Yeah, that, that was an interesting thing, because that was one question I had during the trial was whether jurors would be sympathetic to investors who are, you know, worth billions and billions of dollars and them sort of cry me a river. They got duped out of uh, an investment that, you know, perhaps they should have done more due diligence on. But this showed that even for those kinds of people that the jury did have sympathy, at least when um, it came to the amount of evidence presented sort of in their favor. And so, yeah, for some of these fact deals where you're talking about, you know, mom and pop investors in some cases um, where you could possibly present witnesses will be a lot more compelling, a lot more um, sort of generating sympathy. And so that is, is not great news for some of these facts that could also be caught up uh, in legal cases. Right. And what about, I guess, finally, this is a high profile tech executive being held accountable. We haven't seen a whole lot of that in the tech world, have we? No, I mean, in this kind of case, I mean, maybe Martha Stewart, you know, comes to mind. There's uh, Martin Shkreli, the uh, pharmaceutical startup guy who also was convicted, but there haven't been that many. And so this would you know, send a, a signal and the Biden administration in particular has talked about being tougher on white collar crime. And so you could see more of these cases down the line. And next week or sometime we'll get in the next week or so, we'll get a we'll get a sentencing for her. What 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 how much could she how much time could she spend in jail? 
So the four counts each carry a maximum sentence of 20 years, which is pretty significant. They are usually served concurrently. So you could say maybe 20 years and then you usually don't get the, the maximum. So maybe, you know, five to 10 years, which is still, you know, a significant amount of prison time. She is expected to appeal given this kind of consequence. So we'll see if the verdict stands. But as of now, this is a pretty serious outcome for her. Well, thank you, Gina. We'll be looking forward to your views on her sentencing soon. Thanks, Rob. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producers, Sharon Lamb in Toronto, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your high-quality podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Happy 2022. Happy New Year. 